This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Here in the Northern Rockies, dark winter months are outlasted in basements, dens, and nooks, where kindred souls gather to share intel, swap fly patterns, and relive the memories from seasons past. This gathering spot, known locally as a February room, is the inspiration for this podcast. No matter the season, the door is always open to those with a fly fishing story to tell. Brought to you by CD Fishing USA, the North American distributor for composite developments, fly rods, and fishing accessories. Tech. Precision. Ingenuity. Legacy. Go to cdfishing.us and follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. Here's your host, Lauren Carnop, and this is The February Room. Well, Justin Carnop here, and welcome to The February Room. Uh, today, we have the pleasure of speaking with a renowned uh, regional expert um, on the pursuit of striped bass and, and trophy striped bass at that. Um, obviously, as we peel back the onion, we will discover more today, but he is an author, a guide, uh, a fly designer from Georgia. Henry Cowan, welcome to the show. Hey, Justin. Thanks for having me on uh, the February Room. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to be here. Uh, like most anglers, you wear many hats to keep the dream alive, right? Yeah, you got You know, you got to be versatile. Yeah, that's true. You know, based on your book and website, it would appear that you were something of a specialist in terms of uh, focusing on one species. But like most guides and those with a fishing problem. You've done a fair bit of traveling around, and I'm sure there's some interesting stories from your home, water, home waters as well. So if you wouldn't mind um, sharing a memory with us from your travels. Well, sure. So, you know, I'm a New York City kid who ended up down here in, in Georgia, in Atlanta. But, you know, I grew up in New York City and, uh, you know, fished all around the Big Apple. I mean, literally in Brooklyn, New York is where I grew up. So I cut my teeth saltwater fishing for striped bass for those people that haven't gotten to new york uh you know new york is one of the best playgrounds for fishing in the united states it's not just the concrete jungle we have some fantastic striper fishing in that tri-state area especially in the city and so eventually i migrated i married a southern girl migrated down south here to georgia and started pursuing uh striped bass in freshwater which differ greatly even though they look the same, they differ greatly from striped bass in, in saltwater when pursuing them. So, you know, one of my most fond memories is, and I'll just lead up to this, and uh, I call this fishing forbidden waters. And what I mean by forbidden waters is anglers have gone for years and fished places that eh, maybe you shouldn't be, let's call it. Let's say, you know, I'm not talking about going in and trespassing on you know, somebody's ranch and going into their trout water. I would never, ever do something like that. But for instance, as a kid growing up in New York, uh, in my late teenage years, early 20s, 
we used to fish this place called uh, Lilco, which was the Long Island Lighting Company, and it was a hot water outflow. It made electricity for Long Island. And in the winter, when all the striped bass would migrate back down south um, and make their run south, there were a bunch of fish that would stay in Long Island all winter because the hot water outflow coming from this uh, electricity plant would keep the bait and the stripers there, and we would sneak into the area that we weren't supposed to fish inside the power plant, which was on Long Island Sound, and catch fish all winter long at night, and nobody would ever see us. And I call that forbidden waters, you know. <laughs> and everybody's got some forbidden waters, you know. I'm sure you probably got some spots yourself, Justin, that you fished that you know maybe weren't really open for the public, but you got in there because you knew there were some good fishing. Would is is that fair to say? Oh, something like that probably occurred. Yeah, I mean, I remember when we fished up in the Croton Reservoir in uh, New York, uh, one of the best runs on the whole Croton was behind a Honda dealership, and you had to go into the Honda dealership behind it, go past the cars and go out there, you know, out their back door and walk down to the river to fish one of the best stretches on the river. And, you know, that's forbidden waters to me. So my story that I'm going to tell you happened to me the week of 9-11 back in 2001. And I was already down here in Atlanta and uh, fishing Lake Lanier for stripers. And right after 9-11 happened, I was, in, I was actually up in New York when that occurred. And I got back that Saturday after 9-11, which was about four or five days later. And I went out the next morning fishing on Sunday. I took my boat out and our lake is 38,000 acres, 650 miles of shoreline, loaded with striped bass. And um, what the Army Corps of Engineers did to prevent terrorism at that time was they cordoned off the dam on the south end of Lake Lanier, where they put barrels up about a quarter of a mile across the lake. And it just said, do not enter. And that stretch of where the barrels were that said do not enter was probably about 2,000 yards away from the dam because they didn't want anybody getting near the dam. They were fearful of a terrorist attack that somebody would blow up the dam and that would uh, flood all of Atlanta So uh, because that's Atlanta's drinking water. So one of my really most fun memories was I was down there fishing and I had a, one of my very dear friends, Dennis Ficko, in the boat. And we were down on the south end of the lake looking for fish in September that would be on top. And lo and behold, we're down by the barrels going across the lake. And inside the barrels, about halfway to the dam, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, like coming up from the depths, we see about 500 striped bass just absolutely start tearing up the water. I mean, it was a full on blitz. And I looked at Dennis and I said, Dennis, get your rod out, strip line out, we're going in. And Dennis looks at me and he's like, are you kidding me? It says, do not enter. I said, Dennis, there's nobody here. It's Sunday morning, it's 7.30. Get your line out, we're going in. Do not enter was just merely a suggestion. It was a suggestion. <laughs> it, you know, Every barrel had the sign that said, do not enter. So. So all of a sudden, I'm in my little, at that point, I was fishing out of a 17-foot, a, a uh, 1966 Boston Whaler, an old refurbished Boston Whaler. And so I get Dennis in the bow of the boat. He strips line out, and I run in, to the, I run in between a couple of barrels, and I'm running halfway to the dam. And the fish are just, it looks like somebody's got a blender on the top of the water. Um, if you've never seen a striper blitz... You know, Google Montauk fly fishing, you know, in the fall, and you'll see what these blitzes look like when the fish are just tearing it up. It's just, it's a wonderful sight. And we get those little mini blitzes like that, you know, with much fewer fish than they do in Montauk. You know, Montauk can get 20,000 fish on top. We probably had 500 that morning. And so I pull up to the side of the fish, put the boat broadside so Dennis can make a perfect cast into the blitz. I don't think he got to his second back cast, Justin. And all of a sudden, out from behind the dam comes a boat with three engines, about a 28, 30 foot boat with three engines on the back, sirens, you know, sirens blazing along with lights flashing. 
and there's a guy on the front of the boat with a 30 caliber machine gun and he's in the front of the boat with the captain driving towards us and i'm like dennis sit down we got to make a run for it i i don't think we even got back to the barrels in time by the time this ins boat came out of nowhere and uh plugged us down and and the 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 captain on the boat has got a badge on and he looks at me he goes I don't want to say anything that I'm not allowed to say on on this podcast, but he he looked at me and I'll just calm it down. I'll I'll make it children's uh, uh, children's legible. He looked at me, goes, "Are you freaking out of your mind?" He goes, "Do you know that we are allowed to shoot when we see you here? Didn't you see the sign on those barrels?" And Dennis looks at me and I look at the captain. And I said, "Did you see all those stripers on top on the water?" Before you came blaring out, that had to be 500 fish on the top. And he's shaking his head. And Dennis looks at him. And Dennis is a little older than me. Dennis looks at him. And, he, and Dennis is a very, very honest and high-integrity guy. He points his finger at me. And he looks at the captain. He says, I told him not to go. I told him we shouldn't be doing this. Blah, blah, blah. And there was another boat that had followed me in behind me who came in and saw what we did. And out of the blue, I didn't see him when I, you know, until he came in behind me on top of the fish and then he ran the other way and I just looked at the officer I said don't you think you should go let that uh, that guy know that that he came in illegally too and he's shaking his head going he goes this is a warning he goes I don't want to see you behind these barrels again but we never did get to make one cast at those fish but I, I will just tell you that when you see when you see a gala of fish on top like that just tearing up the water whether it's stripers or false albacore or whatever they are, I say, you know, everything else becomes secondary. You know, your goal is to get to those fish and, and, and get some feathers to throw in, in, in the middle of that whole thing. It would have been an absolute field day. So um, that, that's kind of my, that's kind of one of my favorite stories of fishing, quote unquote, forbidden waters. Yeah, that's a gamble there, buddy. Uh, that's a gamble. Well, you know, you were just hoping that the guy in the INS boat was a fisherman and would have just backed off, but obviously he wasn't. And those fish continued to come up several times when we were behind the barrels and there's just nothing we could do. We just had to leave and go find some other fish that morning. But I want to say that was on, that was around um, uh, like September 16th, uh, 2001, that that happened. That today, that Dennis, when I speak to Dennis, here we are, you know, almost 20 years later and he'll never forget that story you know he'll take that to he'll oh, take yeah. that to the grave that was <laughs> one, one of the great fishing stories um that we've had on our lake i've had several of those by the way those types of encounters and you know like i said you do what you got to do you don't want to be i would never trespass someplace that i wasn't invited i would never do anything like that but you know getting into an area just to catch a few fish and quietly leave without disturbing. I mean, come on, are you kidding me? You know, that, that's what a good guy does. You put your people in fish, you know? Right, right. I got to go several years ago to Maine, and um, and this guy met me. I, I had just kind of uh, hooked up with him right before I went out there for a separate work trip. And um, this this fellow that I took fishing here with his grandkid recommended I reach out to this to this gentleman, and uh, you know he might just take me on a fishing trip. And um, so we met at the mouth of the Kennebec. Well, he picked me up in the town of Bath, brought me a burger, and uh, and drove me up to the mouth of the Kennebec. Love it. I fished there many a time up by Popham Beach in that area. Yeah, boy, it was incredible, man. I, yeah, the the first fish that came in that uh, that I was fortunate enough to put a fly in front of, and and the fish ate it, and it was in you know like shin deep water, like bone fishing kind of style. More, I I was not aware that you could have a striper experience kind of like that. It was incredible. Yeah, they're 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 just a fantastic species, you know. Whether you're fishing for them in salt water or like we do down here in freshwater. You know, it, it gives you, you know, I'm, I am somewhere around 250 miles from the coast, yet I can have a saltwater experience on my lake. And that, that's the beauty of striper fishing in fresh water is it allows you to have a saltwater experience when you're nowhere near saltwater and you get the birds and you get 
fish blasting on top and it's just so exciting the only difference between that and salt water is you're fishing a lake so the boat doesn't rock you know right yeah right yeah well that's really cool um you know they had stripers in some of the lakes around where i grew up in oregon and um they we didn't spend a ton of time targeting them but we we sure we sure gave it hell and it was not easy um they always seemed to be kind of down deep or we weren't timing things right um but for whatever reason we didn't have a lot of success doing that i'd like to go back and try again someday but um anyway on on along those lines tell me about your guide service well so you know i'm here just north of atlanta i'm up in uh coming georgia and, you know, my my fishery mostly is Lake Lanier. I also fish another lake, uh, a little bit smaller lake called Lake Alatoona, uh, which is also just north of, uh, of Atlanta. I'm about 45 minutes north of Atlanta. And on Lake Lanier, we have striped bass, freshwater striped bass. And we also have a species called Kentucky spotted bass. And a lot of people haven't heard of Kentucky spotted bass. Um, they are, if you look at a Kentucky spot, they kind of look like a largemouth, but they act exactly like a smallmouth. Um, but their markings oh, cool. just tend to look more largemouth-like, but they don't. They pull a lot harder and they jump. And um, we have a world-class Kentucky spotted bass fishery. We've actually, we actually own two of the seven line class records for Kentucky spots in the United States are on our lake, on our, on Lake Lanier. So for us, it's, uh, it's like smallmouth fishing and we can get, you know, most Kentucky spots are probably in somewhere between 30 and 35 lakes around the United, uh, you know, 35 states around the United States. You can find them in a lot of states across the country. Um, but we have some of the top spotted bass fishing uh, right here in North Georgia on Lake Lanier, and they just they just pull like the Dickens. It's a great fish, and so that's what I fish out of. And then when I go to Alatoona, I fish for hybrids. Um, not so there are stripers in Lake Alatoona, but it is loaded with hybrids. So when we get topwater hybrid bites, I'll I'll take my little my micro skiff over there, and we'll we'll fish for uh, hybrids, which differ from stripers. Um, they're a little more aggressive. Uh, those are fish that are actually, uh, they're a combination when they're, they're not self reproducing fish. Those have to be stocked and hybrids are a combination between a white bass and a striped bass. They actually take the eggs from one and the, uh, you know, and the, and the sperm from the other, and they put it together and come up with a hybrid. Some people call them vipers and wipers and all sorts, but it's all, they're all hybrids. And so I fish for them a little bit. Uh, here in North Georgia. And then my favorite thing I love to do is in the summertime, uh, I get down on the, uh, I go below Lake Lanier into the Chattahoochee River, which is one of the two rivers that runs through our lake. And uh, I take people down on the Chattahoochee River and we fish off the river on the Oxbow Lakes, which are flats next to the river itself. And we carp fish, we sight fish for carp, uh, pulling around in a skiff. You'd think you were bone fishing. Uh, the water's not quite as clear as, say, a bonefish flat, but, um, you know, we've got, it's a little tannic, but not tannic enough that, you know, when you're pulling around in 10 inches of water, you can see them swimming all around. And I, I just love, you know what? I like to fish, Justin, where water used to be. Uh, you know, you can't get me shallow enough to go fishing. <laughs> uh, sorry, I, I didn't catch whether or not that Kentucky um spotted bass is a, a native species or is that uh is that a hybrid fish or is that a it's its own no its it's, own its, own, it's its own species of fish it's not a hybrid it's a native it's a native species that's here um uh, some people call them kentucky spotted bass some people call them alabama spotted bass um but they are spotted bass and believe it or not for guys that are interested uh in uh in uh, the bass fishing tournaments, you know, there we've got them all over the country, obviously. Um, when you see whether it's the BASS or whether it's the FLW or now the new one is the World World Fishing League, I think it is, or something like that, where you get all these um, professional bass anglers. The three bass that they allow to be caught in these tournaments are either largemouth, smallmouth, or, or spotted bass, Kentucky spots. 
those are the three species allowed in in these tournaments across the country. And so uh, they don't get Kentucky spots, don't get anywhere near as big as largemouth. You know, you, you hear about people catching 10 and 12 pound largemouth bass where Kentucky spots are more similar to the size of a smallmouth, which means it's going to be anywhere from one to five pounds. But we have, you know, if you caught a four pound smallmouth on any river or lake in the United States, somebody would look and go, wow, that's a fantastic fish. Our Kentucky right. spots on my lake, if you catch a four pounder, that's just an average big fish that nobody wow. raises an eyebrow. Everybody looks and goes, really nice fish. But that's not a jaw dropper. You know, anything over five to six is considered a jaw dropper. So we, we have a really special uh, Kentucky spotted bass fishery up here as well. But I mainly, you know, I'm mainly known for targeting stripers. That's that's what I do. But I, I love, the you know, what we call the green fish, the, the bass. I, I love catching them, too. They're they're just a lot of fun. And in the summertime up here on Lanier, while we don't catch the real, real big ones that time of year, these are mostly one to three pound fish, but it's all on six weight rods and, you know, floating lines and poppers, you know, just yeah. throwing any sort of a popper or a, or a pole dancer, you know, a walk the dog kind of fly like Charlie Bishrot's pole dance. You'll drive these fish crazy. It's really a lot of fun. So one of the rivers near where I grew up in central Oregon was, it's called the John Day. And, um, the John Day was a really fun smallmouth fishery. Now, um, it, it was kind of a numbers game, but there was, you know, like the state record came out of there, which was like seven and a quarter pounds or something. Um, so I kind of grew up uh, doing a lot of that popper fishing for smallies, and it's still definitely one of my favorite, favorite methods and favorite fish to target. We do have some opportunity around here in Montana for, for smallies too. Um, and uh, I did get to go to, I have uh, had occasion to fish up in like the north woods of Wisconsin and on uh, the Missis uh, Mississippi and, and uh, some of those other rivers up there where they attain a bigger, you know, size class. And they're a real dark green bass as opposed to the ones kind of out west tend to be like a lighter green and they just don't get that depth and girth and everything. Are those smallies that you guys have down there kind of that real like dark green variety with the red eyes or what do they so, look like so so interesting you say that we our spotted bass are they look i'm telling you from the looks of them if i showed you a spot and i showed you a large mouth you almost couldn't tell the difference except that a large mouth you can tell a little bit from the markings um because the 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 markings on a spotted bass are definitely darker and more defined. The spot going down, there's a line of spots that go down his lateral line in the middle that you can tell the difference between a largemouth and, and a Kentucky spot. But the big, the easiest way to tell, obviously, is if you were to look at where his jaw, the middle of his jaw, where he opens his mouth, the crease in the back of his mouth. On a largemouth, that crease goes to just around the eye or just behind the eye on a largemouth, whereas on a smallmouth or a Kentucky spot, it's in front of that eye because they just don't have that, that big mouth. And so you can see just from the alignment of the jaw crease, um, you can tell whether you've got, if you weren't able to look at something and go, oh, that's a largemouth or that's a spot, that would be the easiest way to tell uh, for certain. Gotcha. Yeah. I'm looking this up right now for reference here. Um, it's interesting how, you know, you can kind of be around anglers for most of your life. And then there's these little regional things that you never hear about. And well, I have you know, never heard about Kentucky spotted bass. Well, we also have a, uh, we also have a, a bass down here, a species called a shoal bass, S H O A L. And those look exactly like small mouths. You almost can't tell the difference. Um, and we have them, they're native to Georgia only, and you catch them in rivers. And uh, we have a great river fishery just north and just south of Atlanta for shoal bass. And, and they're, they're another, just a native species you can't catch anywhere else in the country. Um, and they're fantastic. They are, they are just like, I mean, again, you look at a shoal bass and you look at a smallmouth and guys can't, some guys can't tell the difference. They've got the red eye and the whole nine yards. Um, my spots don't, my spots clearly look like more like a large mouth, clearly look more like it. 
But when you when you're fighting one, you would swear you were fighting a smallmouth because they just dog it and dig and pull and they just don't give up. You know, a largemouth. Uh, I'm not dissing any fish. I love I love all fish with fins. But a largemouth. The beautiful thing about a largemouth bass is, if, especially if you're fishing a popper, uh, it's one of the great takes in fly fishing is catching a largemouth on a popper.、Um, yeah. Once you hook them. You know, it's almost like fighting, for lack of a better term, and not to sound disrespectful, it's like fighting a boot full of urine. You know, but uh, whereas uh, uh, <laughs> a, a Kentucky spot will will you know will dog it all. I mean, he's got attitude. There's no question.、Uh, okay, that's, I've never heard that analogy before. I might have to. If I borrow that from you in the future, do I have to pay your royalties on no, that? No, 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 no. You can, that, that that's just、eh, we've just heard that. Listen, you're out in Montana, so I know you're fishing for a lot of fish that have dots on them. You know, you're 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 fishing browns and rainbows, and and I love you know I having grown up in the Northeast, you know, I I love my trout. Unfortunately, here in the South,、um, while we do have a great trout fishery down here. In Atlanta, believe it or not, we're as far south as we are. We have we have a natural reproducing brown trout fishery in the Chattahoochee River below Lake Lanier, inside Metro Atlanta.、Um, Self-sustaining naturally, they haven't stocked the brown trout in that river in probably 15 years. And、uh, every year, some of the gear guys are pulling out fish between 10 and 18 pounds out of this、wow. out of this river, but. That that being said, and you know, I I don't fish a lot of trout down here anymore, just because I, I was a dry fly snob up in the Northeast. I just, you know, I, Justin, if you put me on a river in Montana and said, if you streamer fish or you nymph fish, you'll catch thirty fish today, but if you dry fly fish, you may only catch five. I'd spend all day catching five fish. I'm good. I am so good with dry fly fishing. I either like to fish super skinny or on top. That's that's my. If I was not guiding, that's what I would be doing. So you know that that's the beauty. Anyway, coming back, that's the beauty of a largemouth fishery is that you know during the right time of year you can fish them on top, and it's one of the it's one of the great takes. You know. Yeah, I I fully hundred percent agree with everything you said there as far as the, the largemouth eat goes.、Um, Yeah, you know, I find myself. It's funny you mention that because I do guide trout.、Um, but if I have days to fish, I more often than not go target pike or try、go. to find a, a bass lake, or I go smallmouth fishing because、um, I love all that stuff too. And、uh, you know, just like you, there's not a fish with fins that I don't want to go after. But、um, just when you're guiding for trout all the time. When you have、uh, your personal days to get out, sometimes it's nice to go explore something else. And pike are delicious eating too.、Um, and you know, we'll we'll save some smallmouth in some of these rivers where it's going to probably be better for the population if you take some of those, you know, thirteen, fourteen inches out of there. Well, you know, if 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 you like eating pike, you know, if you mixed it with a little carp, you'd have yourself your gefilte fish. <laughs> okay, well. I'll take your word for that. Yeah, that, that's that's you get that up in New York, you know. Well, these shoal bass are really beautiful. I just been looking at images of them here.、Um, yeah, they're real pretty. They're real pretty, and and we fish that in.、Um, I don't personally guide for that, but my buddies up at Unicoi Outfitters in North Georgia do guide trips for those fish. And in the summertime,、uh, you can they'll take you out in starting around the end of June. Through most of August, as that water gets lower in the summer, these fish in the river—you're fishing a river that's probably no more. You'll be in a raft,、uh, you know, a, a two-man plus the plus the rower, so a three-man raft.、Um, you'll go down down the river. I don't think it's 120 feet from one side of the river to the other, and all you'll do is throw poppers, you know, and、uh, you know. Google bugs and and stealth bombers and、um, it's all on top in the summertime and it's just great fun, great fun on on six weights、uh, here in North Georgia. So we, you know, Georgia has a pretty diverse fishery, all things considered. You know, considering we're not near the ocean. And I'm like I said, I'm a I'm a dyed in the wool saltwater guy, but 
but I've I've made do. I married a Southern girl, ended up down here, and so now I'm taking advantage of what what Atlanta has to offer. And so we we have good striper fishing, good bass fishing, pretty good trout fishing, I'd say too. Um, and then uh, the carp fishing, I just you know that to me is the bomb. I just can't get enough of that. I I I can't wait till May comes around and I break out the little towy. Uh, technical skiff and just pull around in 10 inches of water is just, to me, there's just no more fun than doing that. Well, you guys do have that Cumberland Island area, right? That I got to go there one time. That was a really beautiful place. That is a pretty place down, down on the shore. Yeah. That, I mean, Georgia has a, has some beautiful coast. Um, there's no question. And they, they get, you know, down there, they got a great red fishery um, along with, they get some tarpon. Uh, that they're learning how to figure out how to fly fish for tarpon down there. They've been catching them for years on bait and stuff, but they're starting to really do a good job with tarpon. And then, uh, and then they have everything else: the sea trout and the, you know, flounder and uh, jacks and some false albacore a little bit, uh, some bonita, some ladyfish, and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it's a pretty good mix. It's a pretty good mix uh, down on the coast. But uh, again, like I said, we're, we're 250 miles from the coast. So our saltwater fishery is, is Lake Sydney Lanier and, uh, and our stripers. And, uh, you know, that's an eight, nine weight fishery because our fish average between six and eight pounds and catching 12, 14, 15 pound stripers is not all that uncommon. And uh, we're going through a stage right now where we're seeing smaller fish uh, versus larger fish. Uh, over the last probably four or five years, you know, when I, up until about five, six, seven years ago, catching fish into the mid upper teens was not unusual and catching fish in the twenties on fly, you know, uh, my biggest fish that I've got on the fly up there was 28 pounds, but I saw one that went 38 pounds, but, uh, you know, that's a great fishery for a freshwater fish uh and a fly rod just they pull great and uh they're just a a a wonderful wonderful fish uh you know and it's becoming you know striper fishing in fresh water is becoming really really popular now around the country and so uh that's kind of what led to you know having the book come out recently as well yeah let's talk about that book a little bit well so about three years ago i got a phone call from one of my dear friends who's unfortunately not around anymore, Lefty Cray, was a very dear friend of mine. I used to speak to Lefty just about every two or three weeks. We would get on the phone for 20 minutes and jaw just to check up on each other. And one day I got a phone call and Lefty called me in the, I don't remember when it was, March or April of 17. And he said, uh, Henry, I'm getting so many emails and letters from people about stripers and hybrids in fresh water. And, you know, there's nothing with regards to fly fishing written on them. And we need a book. The industry needs a book. And he goes, you need to write the book. He goes, you are so dialed in and you have such good friends with other striper guys around the country in fresh water. He goes, you really, you know, don't, don't say no to me on this. And, you know, when Lefty asks you to do something, it's like, uh, you know, it's like the Godfather asking you to do something, you know, you just say, okay, I'll do it. So I agreed to do it. And then um, I, you know, I I put the outline together and I spoke to people all around the country that are big fly anglers for striped bass just to get their take on what it's like out by them. And uh, guys like Dan Blanton on the West Coast and uh, Dave Whitlock in Oklahoma and Bill Butts in, uh, in Missouri, in that area of the, 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 the south, south central part of the country. Um, and just talk to a lot of people. Blaine Chocolate in Virginia is a dear old friend of mine. And so we just, you know, just spoke to them and I just kind of found out what I already had known, but I needed, I needed that to be, you know, qualified that, uh, stripers don't know where they live. So a guy fishing for him in San Luis out in California, Northern California versus a guy fishing Norfolk Lake versus a guy fishing Smith Mountain Lake in, in Virginia. Uh, and here in Lake Lanier in Georgia, you know, we all have the same, we all have the same problems and we all find the same patterns. And so basically 
They don't know where they live. And so they all kind of react the same way. So anyway, long story short, I put the book together and it took a little bit longer, Justin, than what I thought it would take. Lefty got sick and passed away while I was in the writing of it. And the minute he passed away, I, uh, it hit me like a ton of bricks. You know, I, it was almost like losing a second dad. Um, I was very close with him. And so I just didn't, I didn't pick the book up for about seven or eight months. I just, you know, I guided, but I didn't even fun fish a whole lot for myself. I just, you know, realized later that I was grieving. Um, I just had no interest in doing all that stuff. And finally I got out of that funk and finished up the book. And I called Dave Whitlock and said, Dave, uh, uh, I'm writing this thing. Would you write the forward? And he goes, man, not only would I write the forward, how would you like some illustrations for the book? And, you know, that was, you know, I was over the moon to have Dave Whitlock, who's one of the great fishing artists in, in our industry, you know, want to offer up some, some of his illustrations on, on temperate bass or stripers and hybrids. Uh, and he did, and, uh, we got it done and the book is now out. It just came, it was released about, oh, about three, four weeks ago. It just got out on, on for sale. And so, uh, you know, it's available on Amazon and books a million and, uh, Barnes and Noble. And, you know, then there's places like Flyman Fishing Company is selling it and well as, uh, fly shops around the country. It's, it's, uh, Skyhorse produced it, which is the old Lions group, Nick and Tony. Uh, Lions, they're the guys that, that published the book. So, uh, we'll see, you know, it seems like it's doing well. I don't know. They haven't, you know, they haven't really said much. And so we're just getting out and promoting it now. So, uh, but, uh, like I said, I was very blessed to have a lot of friends in the industry who were able to help out and lend, uh, either advice or, or photos and, and whatnot to get this thing done. One of, one of the, I was very, very fortunate when it came to photography. Uh, Josh England was my photographer in the book. Uh, and a, a, I also had a few from David Cannon. And these are two guys that have written for just about every fly fishing publication out there. Um, and they happen to be friends that live here in North Georgia that uh, happen to love striper fishing. So they had a lot of photographs. Uh, that we were able to, to to pillage from, and that to me, that's that's really what made the book. Is we've got just great, very artistic photos and a lot of photos of uh, explaining to folks what to do and how to target these things. You know, it's not a lot of stuff about just showing fish and pictures of hero shots, but you know, when we talk about in the book fishing a blow through. You know, we take a, we took a shot of, uh, you know, we took a, um, uh, a picture, uh, of what a blow through looks like from above, you know, using a drone. So you could clearly see what a blow through is. Same thing when we talk about fishing like pockets, we use terminology like fishing pockets. And a lot of guys just don't know, you know, when you're talking about a lake, what's a pocket? Well, we took a drone shot and showed people what pockets are. So we're hoping it's going to be enough to get people started. Cool. And the book is called Fly Fishing for Freshwater Striped Bass, correct? Yep. Yes. That's, that's the name of the book. Pretty straightforward. Pretty straightforward. You know, inter yeah. interestingly enough, Justin, there are one of our bait and tackle shops here that does very little fly fishing, but is on Lake Lanier, is selling the book as well, Hammond's Fishing Center, just because while it's called Fly Fishing for Freshwater Stripers, truth be known, uh, of the nine chapters, two are probably dedicated to fly fishing with regards to tackle flies, lines, yada, yada, yada. The other seven chapters really are all about how to locate um, and find striper and hybrid fisheries on lakes and rivers around the country. So even if you're a conventional guy um, and you're listening to the February, you know, the February podcast here, um, there's enough in it. Even if you're not a fly fisherman, you're going to get enough out of that book to get you started in the right direction for these fish. Cool. Um, and, you know, getting back to, to talking about patterns, you mentioned that, um, you know, yourself and um, some of the other dedicated bass fishermen around, uh, around the country kind of all end up fishing somewhat similar flies. Can you tell me about uh, your series of flies? Because I know you've developed uh, several. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm with Umqua Feather Merchants. Um, I started out many years ago with Orvis. I was on there, 
royalty fly designer program and I skipped over to uh, Umpqua and I've been a royalty tire for those guys for probably close to 20 years now. And, you know, 90% of my flies are, are flies for salt water or, or warm water use. They're, they're flies for stripers and bass, false albacore, you know, things of that nature, snook. Um, and then a little more recently, uh, well, I shouldn't say a little more recently. The, the most recent fly I've got out with them is a redfish fly called the redfish scampi. Um, and that came from a fly that Uncle took from me back in the early 2000s, which is called a bonefish scampi, which is, you know, easily one of their top bonefish flies that they sell when they, when they put a, a package of flies together. If you wanted to just buy like their Bahamas selection or their flat selection, and they give you, you know, 10 different flies in an assortment. The bonefish scampi is one of them. It's just been a really good pattern for, uh, for catching bonefish all around the world. And so, um, uh, that morphed into the redfish scampi, which is very similar, just tied bigger and in different colors to, to, to provoke a redfish to eating the fly in shallow water. You know, it looks like a, like a shrimp type pattern. And, uh, but most of my flies, you know, I, I will say this, you know, there's two types of tires out there, Justin, when it comes to tying, this is the way I see it. There's guys, and, and we all go back to, you know, Bob Popovics once said, a fly should be designed to solve a problem. And those were brilliant words, and he's right. And so there are flies, there are guys that tie flies that are innovators, you know, guys like Popovics and Chocolate and Charlie, you know, Blaine Chocolate and Charlie Bisharad and uh, you know, uh, uh, Joe Blados with his crease fly and, uh, uh, Bob Clouser. Bob Clouser and David Nelson. These are guys that are, that have Dave Whitlock, Dave, you know, Whit I mean, Dave Whitlock for sure. These Dave guys, Hopper, one, you know, yeah. I, I mean, so these guys have come out with, and the guys I'm naming are mostly saltwater type guys. Um, you know, saltwater and warm water type fly guys and they've designed flies that are just the most innovative never been seen before and then there are guys that tie what i like to call guide flies where they may take a pattern find that there's an issue with something and they may they for, for lack of a better term they build a better mousetrap and right. whether it's adding you know different materials that make a big difference or putting a lip on a fly or just changing it slightly um, you know, that's the realm I fall in. I'm not an innovative tire. You know, I'm not a Blaine Chocolate or a Bob Popovics or a Dave Whitlock. I, I tie guide flies that work in certain situations that I needed to correct. And, you know, one, one of my early flies that I designed, and this is coming from, I fished, I, you know, I fished um, uh, conventional long before I was a fly fisherman in New York City. And my best, my best striper lure back in the day was a, a lure called a roadrunner and a roadrunner is similar to a bucktail jig but it has a spinner blade on the front and i used to be on the rocks fishing a, a roadrunner and i would outfish four guys lined up on either side of me i'd outfish them five to one because of that spinner blade so when i got into fly fishing and i saw i you know the first thing i said is how do i design a roadrunner for fly fishing and I looked at the Clouser minnow, which was tied with all bucktail at the time. And I said, well, that's a good design. Now let me just add a spinner blade to that and put some rabbit on there to get more wiggle in there to get it to breathe more. And all of a sudden, you know, we had a fly called the coyote that to this day is still being tied by Ampua and is a very successful fly. And the reason it's called a coyote, uh, if you remember the cartoon, the roadrunner, what followed the roadrunner? The coyote. There you go. So that's how that fly, because it was designed after a, it was designed after a roadrunner lure for fly fishermen. So it got its name, the coyote, and so or the coyote, either one. E either way, you fish it, you got to howl at the moon. You know that that's all you need to know. That thing would tear the smallmouth up around here. I'm certain of it. Yep. Yep. Looking at it right now. Yeah, it's, it's a it's a really good fly. Um, talking about smallmouth. Uh, one of our buddies in the industry, Brad Beefus, who's the who's the uh, the president of Cy Anglers, that's that he said is his favorite smallmouth fly to use. So uh, you know, it's it's a good fly. There's a lot of good flies. You know, you know, the hardest part getting back real quick to the book 
was, you know, you could write a whole book on striper flies. There's not, you know, there's probably 500 flies that would take a striped bass. Uh, so, you know, my, my whole thing, it's flies are so subjective that the easy thing to do was to just say, I'm going to, I'm going to put together a list of the top 13, a baker's dozen of 13 flies, some top water, some subsurface. And in these 13 flies, if you put them in a box and start in California and drive east to Pennsylvania, you'll be able to catch stripers in any lake or river across the country. And so that's kind of what we decided to do in the book. Got it. Well, Henry, this has been um, a highly entertaining and informative uh, conversation for me. Um, Really can't uh, thank you enough for taking the time to chat with us and share um, all of your knowledge on bass fishing. And um, uh, it's just been a treat, but uh, I'd love to hear uh, one more personal uh, fly fishing story from the archives. If you've got, uh, you got one more for us. I've got a quick one for you. And this happened to me back in the early 2000s. You know, I used to, and I I haven't done it in the last year and a half because of COVID or last year, but I, I, um, I was a member of the uh, yellow dog uh, advisory team for, for back in the day. And so I ran trips all over the world with fly fishermen. And one day I ran a trip into Abaco in the Bahamas and we were, we were fishing Rickman's Lodge and Sandy Point. And there were, I took myself and seven other anglers, eight of us went out and uh, we get in the boat one morning and we all take off and go in different directions. And my guide that day, along with my fishing companion decided we're gonna go fish the marls. It's about a 50 minute run but we're going to go fish the marls, which is a very famous bonefish area in, in, you know, in the Bahamas. And we went back into the marls and we got about two miles into the marls and we were fishing and catching fish and having a ball. And all of a sudden, it's about one o'clock in the afternoon, Justin, and the guide starts up the engine, gives it the gas to go, and we spun the prop. And uh, are you familiar with spinning in the prop, what that means? Yeah, I have uh, I, I have uh, witnessed that before. Not on a boat that I've been on, but I've heard of it. Yep. So the 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 prop didn't didn't seal with the hub any longer, and so the prop spins but doesn't catch, so that you can't go anywhere. It just spins, but the boat doesn't move. And here we are, two miles back in the in the marls, in the middle of nowhere, at one one thirty in the afternoon. And I look at my guide and I said, Kendall, no no problem, dude. Just just. Just call Ricardo, who owns the lodge. I said, call Ricardo up and have him, go, have him come get us. And he looks at me, he goes, oh, man, I dropped my phone in the water two weeks ago. I hadn't had a chance to get a new phone, so I don't have anything to, I have no way of calling him. And I'm looking, I'm going, you got to be kidding me. So here we are, two miles in the marls, and I'm like, now what do we do? So... I look at my buddy, Ricky, who's with me, and Ricky's like, look, we got to fix the hub. I said, okay. He goes, we got to take take the, the cotter pin out, take the prop off, and we got to screw screws into the rubber hub and then put the prop back on, put the cotter pin back on, and hopefully that will be enough grip to catch the for the hub to catch the, the prop. And I'm like, okay. So he takes out, the, the guy takes out this old rusted screwdriver and we find a couple screws in the boat that, you know, were coming out. It was an old, you know, whatever it was, a dolphin skiff back in the day. We take out two screws, we take the prop off and we, we put the prop, we put the nail, the uh, screws into the prop and we start to go and we get up to about five miles an hour. It's working. And all of a sudden we probably went about 200 yards and he gives it the gas and he spun the prop again. Well, I'm going to tell you, to make a long story short, Justin, this went on for the next three hours. We kept taking screws off the console and around the boat, wherever we saw a screw, we just kept taking screws off, fixing the hub, screwing it in, putting the prop back on and going. And after we spun the prop about five or six times, I just said, look, we're going to do this again. You're not going to go above five miles an hour. Get us out of the marls. And so sure enough, we took two more screws. We put it in. We must, I'm guessing at this point, we've got 14, 16 screws in this hub. And 
finally it works and he doesn't go above five miles an hour and he gets us out to the opening back to the ocean and as the sun is setting at 7 30 at night we see a boat coming in the distance and it was ricardo and he had found us and he towed us back to to the dock back at abaco at the at, at rickman's lodge and i swear to you justin when we got back to the dock you could have taken the console and lifted it up and put it on the dock. There was not a screw left in that boat. We had unscrewed the entire boat to, to get out of the marls so that we could we, we could get back to, to civilization. We were already rationing, you know, uh, uh, nutri, you know, nutri, nutrition bars and water. We had already planned on spending the night in in that skiff. But fortunately, we were found and uh, we made it back. And from that day forward, any guide trip, any, I'm sorry, any trip that I've ever gone on where I've gone on an outfitter to one of these countries out of, I don't want to call it a third world, but one of these non-USA kinds of outfitting lodges, I make sure that the lodge manager is, has written down where every guide is going every day because I don't trust satellite phones and everything else, batteries, this and that. I want my people knowing if something happens, I want to know the area where they're fishing and what a lesson learned that was. <laughs> well, I guess that which uh, doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That's so. right. That's right. You bet. You bet. Well, Henry, uh, folks can find you at uh is it henry cohen flyfishing.com yep c-o-w-e-n henry cowan flyfishing.com yep they can track you down there um do you have an instagram account i do it's just under henry cowan okay henry cowan on instagram and uh look for the book fly fishing for freshwater striped bass available on amazon and uh where where else did you say other than fly shops uh you can get it from flyman fishing company you can get it from books a million barnes and noble and uh, I have some limited edition hardcover copies. It's a soft cover book. It retails for sixteen ninety nine. The hardcover edition is thirty two nine. It's thirty five shipped. Thirty five dollars shipped for a limited edition autographed hardcover edition from me if they're interested. And they can just email me at. They can get my email address from the website from Henry Cowan Flyfishing Go to thefebruaryroom.com where you can access a complete library of our podcast and read more about our guests, their fishing stories, and favorite fly patterns. We're always looking for exceptional fly fishing yarns, and if you have one to spend, shoot us an email at info at thefebruaryroom.com. The February Room is always free, but if you feel like throwing a nickel in the pond, we appreciate any additional listener support. For companies and individuals interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us for our media kit. Thanks for stopping by the February Room, and we'll see you down here next week.